Welcome to The Developmental, a podcast about the messy, beautiful ways grown-ups grow up. Here, we explore turning the science into the day-to-day practice of adult development in teams, homes, organizations, and life. Hello, friends, and welcome to a new episode of The Developmental. As those of you who listen to this podcast or read my articles probably already know, the topic of walking the talk, the capacity to be the person you are asking or raising, coaching, teaching others to be, is very important to me. I believe it's crucial to walk the talk in many contexts, but particularly so in professions where the very focus of our work is supporting others' growth. Therapists, coaches, facilitators all have, I believe, a big responsibility in doing the work of development for themselves, just as they do it with their clients. Scaffolds like mentoring and supervision go a long way to keeping us honest and evolving, but so do our own efforts, day in and day out. But what do those efforts look like? What does it actually mean to embody the work? In this episode, I explore these very questions with my dear friend and fellow coach, Priya Ahuja. I've met Priya in a context where I was a newcomer, entering an established group of long-time coaches of which she was part. From the get-go, I was touched by her authenticity, integrity, openness and generosity in helping me feel right at home in that high-stakes environment. Over the years, we have become close friends and I have learned so much from her on the art of coaching, but also on the art of being a wise human being. To me, Priya is a coach who walks the talk, and I have invited her to unpack what that means for her. What is the inner work she's doing to keep herself honest, aware, and to cultivate within herself the wisdom she is striving to support in her clients? A little bit about Priya. She brings more than two decades of experience at McKinsey & Company as a leader supporting individual and institutional transformation. She now works for herself as a leadership coach and facilitator. She also mentors coaches seeking to further develop their capacities. Priya supports senior leaders across the globe on tailored individual leadership journeys anchored in their current strengths, helping them realize and live into their full potential. She facilitates large-scale leadership transformation programs locally and globally, working simultaneously at the individual and group levels to support leaders, executive teams and organizations to more skillfully navigate the extreme turbulence emblematic of the current global environment. Priya's coaching and facilitation is informed and supported by leading-edge thinking and practices in the field of adult development, systems leadership and change, and the human potential movement. Her own experience of growing up, living and working in four countries across three continents has also shaped her approach to coaching, facilitation and mentoring, as she brings this rich diversity of lived experiences in her work. Priya is a certified Integral Master Coach. She holds a Master's degree in Organizational Psychology and a Master's degree in International Relations. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Priya. We're on. <laughs> Beautiful. Welcome, Priya. Welcome to the developmental. 
Thank you so much, Alice. It's such a privilege to be on this podcast with you. So thank you for having me. And it's such a it's such a joy to bring one of our beautiful conversations out into the light and invite other people in. I'm very, very happy to have you here and I can't wait to explore a lot of um, shadows and lights and nuances of uh, this work we both love and do, uh, which is coaching in different ways. Absolutely. I'm so looking forward to having this conversation with you and, and, and yeah, just, you know, um, hopefully shining the light in ways that will will help some of your listeners. Um, and I hope us too, as we go through this podcast, that we continue to learn and grow and discover from each other. Yeah, I, I often think that I'm doing these uh, out of a fundamentally selfish reason, <laughs> because I learn so much every single time. Uh, so I have no doubt this will happen again today. Um, I, maybe I will I'll, uh, give a bit of context to mm-hmm. how, how we met and how the, this topic of, of doing and being and being the work we are doing as coaches uh, came about in, in our initial conversations. Mm-hmm. So we met, I believe, close to almost five years ago now. I don't know where time has gone. (laughs) Um, In a program that I was uh, researching uh, for my PhD, and you were part of the faculty as one of the coaches supporting that cohort of leaders um, Mm -hmm. I was studying. And I remember um, being struck by how, uh, and we're going to be using this word quite a bit, and maybe we'll need to define it, but how embodied you were, how, how you were embodying uh, what I believe to be just the spirit of coaching and of collaboration and of dialogue. And, and I remember that being my first thought when I met you, oh, this is a woman who walks the talk and I love just listening to her and learning from her. Um, and, and you embodied that in, you know, the way you welcomed me into that community, the way you supported me throughout. So I believe that the, I have a lot to learn from you about what it means to just be the work that you're doing. So, <laughs> yeah, <Wow. laughs> I'm um, I, I'm just noticing one just appreciation for what you're sharing and uh, that little bit of discomfort as well. <laughs> <laughs> let it sink in. Let it sink just in. It, yeah, just letting it sink in right now and. Uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm so glad that that was your experience, you know, and um and I um I'm looking forward to sharing the journey that brought me to where I am and which is taking me I'm not sure where but I'm enjoying being on this journey because it's really fulfilling and I like to share what it's brought into my life and how that might serve perhaps some of your listeners, especially people who are in this developmental coaching and facilitation space yeah so maybe let's start there Priya Mm -hmm. Uh, what um, you've been coaching for for a long time and Mm -hmm. I know you have a a deep deep love and passion for this craft Um, and and I know you're treating it as much more than just a craft which is what we're going to explore but um, can you share a bit how did you come to it what what brought you into this space of coaching and then of integral coaching and practice what was the journey I mean, I mean, thank you for that question. You know, it's um, it's a story I don't often tell, 
but I've always been a student of the mind, you know, and the psyche. It's just, I've been a lifelong learner in this space. I can still recall when I first discovered psychology as an undergrad student, and I just knew I'd found my passion and I'd found my calling, right? Uh, it caused me to make this massive pivot from, I was enrolled at that point to be an undergrad honors in mathematics. Really? I didn't know that. I pivoted to an undergrad honors in psychology. That's that's just how much I knew. You know, it just, I didn't know about psychology till then. And it was just hearing about this discipline. It just, I've always wanted to work with people. And this felt like a pathway that resonated quite deeply with me. Um, But, you know, oddly, paradoxically, paradoxically the more I studied the less I felt I knew Mm. Um, and you know right through my undergrad and my graduate studies in psychology and even in my early years working in the organizational transformation space there was always this sense that something was always missing for me Um, and so you know maybe here's an example Um, I was in my first job with the boutique sort of org transformation change management firm we did work with lots of blue chip clients and I was lucky to as part of that stumble across the work of people um, like Juran and Deming and other pioneers of the total quality movement and I'm talking now about the late 1980s okay Uh, and seeing this whole other way of leading people and working with people that all of my background and studies in org site just hadn't exposed me to, you know. And so off I went to Japan mm. um, because that's where this work originally came from. And I enrolled in a second master's in Japanese studies and international management, uh, really to uh, try and learn more about this way of working and how it could apply beyond Japan. Like what was magical about this style of leadership? But even that had a sense of incompleteness to it, you know, and it was only when I at some point in the early 90s, I think, stumbled across the writings of Ken Wilber uh, and integral theory that I finally came to understand that um, every one of these approaches that I had learned and studied about, um, all approaches to growth and development, they were all really valid in their own rights. And they were also partial, mm, mm. that there was no real approach that was all encompassing of the complexity that defines reality. Yeah. You know, and for me, that whole idea of rightness and partiality, holding something as right and partial, that was such a big aha moment for me, right? And sort of an invitation to kind of explore and integrate as many approaches and perspectives as I could realistically play with, Uh, to keep refining that meta map I was working with around growth and development, Um, not with the expectation that I would cover all my bases, but really just to keep broadening and enriching that map I was working with so that I had more ways of understanding and more ways of interpreting the workings of the psyche, you know, uh, of the mind and more ways of responding to whatever might be emerging as I worked with individuals and I worked with groups. Mm. Um, 
And that then led me to um, train as a coach with Integral Coaching Canada because I found that that was a school that was very anchored in this approach. And then, of course, I was very lucky to have the opportunity to apply what I was learning and exploring, especially when I served for over a decade as an in-house coach, uh, working with, you know, tenured consultants and partners and clients uh, for a global firm. And that's how we met on one of the leadership programs. And it's an approach I continue to work with now in how I work with my clients. You know, and I'm working for myself now, but this idea of really, yeah, working with a deeper, more refined, more textured map that allows us to really bring more diverse understandings and many more varied interpretations of what might be going on so that we Mm. can increasingly um, meet clients, hopefully, uh, where they are. Yeah. Wow, there are so many, so many avenues <laughs> I'd love to go. But uh, the first question that that is just sitting there in my mind, and I'll just say it is, what what was it in you, like in your experience, in the things you cared about in your own life that, uh, you know, fueled that curiosity that, ah, oh, I want to learn about this, but it's not enough. And it's true and, and partial. What, what do you feel has been a driver of that search for you? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think that maybe some of it's coming from perhaps a sense that um, there was not a stickiness to the transformation, you know, that I would perhaps, uh, or the work I was doing, where was, where was the stickiness? Like how do you create sustainable transformation? So, so seeing it, Something. seeing the change being embedded and kind of becoming sustainable, That's which it. isn't That's happening that often. Yeah, you know, you will find that it happens for a while, but then things relapse or... Yeah, people go back to their just old ways. That's it, that's it. And, you know, how can you actually serve uh, sustainable transformation and change in in an individual, in, in a group of individuals? And as part of that, also starting to tune into hey, how am I growing, right, in a way that is sustainable? How am I evolving in a way that is truly reflecting uh, and embodying what some of the maps suggest I should be embodying? Yeah. How am I bringing more congruence between what, the maps of growth and change and evolution are suggesting should be present and the territory I'm actually inhabiting, the ways in which I'm actually showing up, where's the congruence between those two and how do I actually find ways to make those more congruent? Yeah. Does that so sound- did, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it does make sense. And I, I'm wondering if it would be fair to say that when we say embodying, we mean an alignment between, you know, what you're thinking is the right thing to do, feeling is the right thing to do, and what you're actually then doing. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that um, as sort of developmental coaches and facilitators, we're um, sort of quite 
often drawn quite naturally to, to sort of explore the workings of the mind and to want to make more sense of how our minds work, uh, how we take, how our clients take. And, you know, frameworks, models, these can cast, it's anything that can cast more light on this terrain that has real allure for us. But I think we really want to develop and build that capacity uh, to discern perhaps when we're over-indexing or over-identifying with these frameworks and these models. Because ultimately, you know, a model or a framework is just that. It's an abstraction of reality. Mm. Right? And by its nature, it will be reductionist in some way. Yeah. Uh, it can't really capture the dynamism, you know, of reality or the complexity of the human being, the complexity of the human psyche, uh, the complexity of any given individual, because we're all different. Uh, so I think we want to, as developmental coaches, we want to really invest in continuing to learn and know more models, more maps, refine our maps. Um, and we also want to kind of really be able to not unconsciously substitute our maps for the territory that we're inhabiting as human Mm. beings. We want to be able to kind of tease that apart. Mm. Yeah. So knowing that our our models and our frameworks and our stages and all the other concepts we work with in this space are just constructs really to help us make sense, but they're not the thing. They're not the thing. They're not the territory we inhabit, right? And so what is the territory we inhabit, right? And I think starting to do that work, if we really want to do this work, then starting to understand for ourselves as in, as developmental coaches, well, what is the territory I inhabit, you yeah. know? Um, starting to really unpack my identity um, mm. as a coach. Um, is that some way that you yeah. think will be useful to go? Oh, I'm happy. Yeah, I'd love to explore that. And I'd love to, um, because I know you, you've you've lived through so many instances of, of maybe facing this within yourself. Am I actually inhabiting the territory? So I wonder if there's any story maybe that comes to mind where you, you might have, you know, faced your own um, attachment to a map maybe, or kind of challenge your own mindset and went, look, this is actually just a map, but here's the territory. And this is what I need to do to actually um, inhabit the territory, as you so beautifully said. What does that look like? Um, Yeah. I mean, that's a really beautiful question. So, you know, I think that uh, if I imagine I'm with a client who has a reputation for being a challenging leader, And I'm now in this really sensitive conversation with this individual. I'm, you know, I'm doing everything the maps suggest I should do. I'm kind of holding up the mirror to this individual, um, inviting them to tune into who they're being. And I'm getting pushback. I'm getting disagreement. And now I'm being challenged Mm. in that moment, in that conversation. And I noticed that, I'm not able to show up and stay in that conversation. I want to take away the discomfort of being in that challenge. Yeah. So you don't want you don't to feel the conflictual nature of that conversation that's or it. the aggression of the client that's coming that's your it. way or any of that stuff. Yeah. 
And then I start to notice what I'm doing then. How, am I placating? Am I, you know, how am I taking the conversation forward? Mm. Uh, and, and, then, and then I start to notice after the conversation, the voice of self-criticism. Mm-hmm. You know, I should have been able to do that. You know, I, because something in my coaching identity has me anchored at, on this map that I'm using at a level of development that is not in congruence with the territory I was inhabiting in that conversation. Yeah. You know, my map tells me I should have been able to regulate my emotions. I should have been able to stand in my power. I should have been able to... Um, you know, um, ask powerful questions, whatever it is that my map tells me I should have been able to do, I was not able to do. And I noticed the voice of self-criticism. Mm-hmm. So how do you deal with that voice when, yeah. when you hear it? Um, interestingly, you know, this is one of the things that I started working on quite, quite early in my coaching career is the, you know, developing a capacity for self-acceptance not and the minute I use self-acceptance with some individuals I find that their meaning making might be around oh you're asking me to be mediocre no I'm not asking you to be mediocre right I'm asking you to build the capacity to accept exactly where you are now knowing that from that place of where I am now I will continue to grow and I can invite myself to continue to grow. Uh, And I know that I'm on this journey and I can really savor the journey I'm on. Yeah. Um, I was going to actually, that was exactly the question that popped into my mind because I I have heard this statement uh, made in response to, you know, maybe uh, the value of cultivating self-acceptance and, and the responses. So then that's complacency, right? That's mm-hmm. if you accept, then you settle for mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what is and mm-hmm. what is is not good enough. Mm-hmm. Then mm-hmm. what you're saying is notice when you're falling back, as Valerie Livesey would probably say, when, when you've behaved in a way that is not congruent with the maturity you know you're capable of, that's it. And then you're noticing that critical voice kind of starting to tear apart what you've done and kind of getting into that critical stance. But then you bring self-acceptance to that, not as a way to just ignore what happened no. or let it go, but as a way to, what's, what's the nuance there for you? What, what does self-acceptance when it's paired up with a genuine desire to continue growing, what does that do? So... I think that, um, so it, let's unpack that a little bit. So if I were to sort of, how do I anchor in self-acceptance in a way that is skillful, in a way that invites me to grow? Um, perhaps, and, and, you know, this is true for me, but every coach has to find their own pathway through this, right? And, and my invitation would be that you experiment and you f- keep experimenting till you find pathways that, that work for you. Um, but for me, I know that the self-critic is a voice that can show up. And over the years, because I've been 
working and practicing and working and practicing with engaging with this voice skillfully, it's not as pervasive now. But it's still there. It's never going away. Uh, and so how do I kind of accept that rather than sort of, you know, giving into the voice of the self-critic, how do I invite myself to accept that, you know, where I am, who I was able to be in that conversation, in that context, uh, that was exactly where I needed to be. Uh, and that was exactly where I needed to be because it's shining a light on what else I need to embody. Where else can I, how can I continue to grow in a way that allows me to be in that kind of a challenging context more skillfully? Right. So you look at that moment as something that might have been unpleasant, but then it was at the same time an opportunity to see the growth that That's you can it. actually engage in that you would That's not have it. seen otherwise. That's it. I don't want to push it under the carpet. My invitation is to see what else can I, you know, what was I unable to embody in that moment that perhaps I needed to develop the capacity to embody. So I might find, for example, that, Maybe as I explore that, that question, I might find that, you know, what I noticed was how much I was engaging in that moment from my head, mm -hmm. uh, from trying to be logical or trying to be rational. And where I was, what I was not engaging enough from was my heart. Uh, and that can then give me an opportunity to consider, well, what's, what's, a, um, what's a practice I can bring online that allows me to bring my heart into these conversations right? some more than I would have otherwise, right? Yeah. Um, so you would turn that reflection into some sort of then concrete experiment you can try next time it. you're in a similar that's situation. That's it, right? And when my heart's online, then what becomes more possible for me, you know? Um, perhaps when my heart's online, I'm sort of fast-forwarding this and I'm probably pulling on lots of different instances to, to sort of create this example as it were. But when my heart's online, maybe I find that actually I can tune in more to my own interiority and at the same time also remain present to my client's interiority. What's happening in, in the interpersonal space for me, what's happening in their interpersonal space for them, mm -hmm. you know? Um, what's the interpersonal behavior they're displaying at that moment? What's the interpersonal behavior I'm displaying in that moment? Mm -hmm. um, am, I in a, am I displaying more giving uh, and are they displaying more taking? I, you know, I'm just making this up, but it, it, we want to start, you know, what's happening in my emotional space for me, what's happening in their emotional space yep. for them. Um, uh, really start to tease apart what is, in the, what is playing out in this interaction that is me? What is the territory I'm actually inhabiting? Yep. What is the territory my client is inhabiting? And being able to hold both of those things side by side, developing that capacity to be present to both. And it's not something that's going to happen in a single conversation, but this is something you keep chipping away at and just mm. developing more and more skill with. 
um, such that, yeah, there is congruence in who you're being and you're meeting your client where they need to be met and you're able to stay with that. You're able to accept that this is how it's going to be and I'm going to be able to just sit with this now and rather than close or placate or move forward in some way, I'm going to stay with this conversation and continue to offer some things. Maybe I help the client be more accepting of what's coming up for them. You know, uh-huh. I offer a frame that might help them kind of normalize what they're experiencing. Yeah, that so way. you might reflect back at them, you know, the way they're, you know, they're angry towards you and, That's you know, it. what that exactly. means for them. Yeah. And- what's happening for them mm. That's it. rather I than might... just trying to placate and, and kind of soothe that uncomfortable feeling. That's it. Yeah. Right. So how do I, yeah. How do I offer presence what's happening in that interpersonal dynamic in the space between us into that conversation? Mm-hmm. Maybe if my heart's more online, I'm also able to tune into what's not being said uh, by the client, by me. Uh, mm-hmm. And how do I bring that into the conversation, right? Yeah. Uh, and and then from there, how do I offer something that continues to take us forward constructively? What sorts of powerful questions can I ask in that moment that allows us to continue with this mm. conversation in a yep. way that is helpful for the client? Yeah, and and I'm loving I'm loving this um this example, and it's making me think of something you mentioned before we started the recording around how when you're doing this type of self reflective work constantly as a coach, where you go, am I just talking about my models here, or am I actually walking my talk? Mm-hmm. You said you become the instrument. Um, of your own work and and mm. I'd love you to say a bit more about that what does that mean for you to to be the instrument and I I do believe that that this idea extrapolates to other areas I think in in education teachers are often the instrument um, of their work in the classroom uh, or leaders they're often it's the being of the leader that actually mm. makes a huge impact on the team rather than what the leader knows. And in parenting, I'm thinking of, you know, my own uh, experience as a mother. It's how I am in relation to my child that often I see as creating the biggest impact rather than what I just say. And when I when my words are incongruent with my actions, she'll pick it up immediately. So I'd love us to explore a bit this idea of, yeah, what does it mean to be the instrument of whatever mm. work you happen mm. to be doing in that mm. moment, be it mm. coaching or teaching or leading or raising kids or whatever other instances where you do have an impact on other people's yeah. uh, lives or growth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful phrase and it was, you know, the first time I ever came across it was when I was going through my coaching certification, this notion of self as instrument. And it's something that's really stuck with me because, you know, like you were saying, it's so important to sort of tease apart, are we over-relying on tools and frameworks? Uh, and is that over-reliance causing us to be blind to who we're actually being in that moment? You know, is there congruence between the tools and frameworks and maps that we're using in the moment and we're teaching from or we're 
uh, parenting from and who we're actually able to be in mm-hmm. that moment and how do we kind of bridge that and uh you know self as instrument might be a way of bringing more congruence between those two or developing self as instrument um and you know there's i think there are several different ways in which people describe this yeah so i'm going to give you what is sort of my lived experience of self as instrument uh and i think it's really being the more you can develop self as instrument the more present you can be to who you are being for me self as instrument is really about continuing to cultivate that deeper awareness of where am i playing from in any given moment really being present to that what's my default meaning making that's happening for me in any given moment and how do i deploy that to kind of make meaning of what is actually happening in this mm. moment. Mm. So um, it would be almost asking yourself how am i actually showing up? What am i doing? What am i saying? What's my energy in this conversation? Like checking in on all of those um facets of being of showing up in in a moment and yeah. and seeing is this aligned with you know what i say or i think is the um mature approach in a situation like this mm. yeah i mean you know maybe um um if we use an example to bring it alive and we can play with a couple of different examples if you think that'll help i'm thinking about something like active listening you know yep every coach every coach knows that's that's like a foundational capacity that we know we have to embody in our in our interactions with clients and i'm just holding this but you know we can extrapolate like to parenting to teaching and all these other domains that we play in uh but you know how do i know i'm embodying active listening you know and i think that um am i as a coach i've read everything that's that exists out there in, on this topic i you know i've done a whole lot of tests that tell me I'm really I have the capacity to be pretty good at this. I got this beautiful map of what it means to show up um in a way that you know demonstrates active listening. But when I'm in the conversation with the individual have I developed the capacity to really tune into listen such that i can hear my own internal voice while i am also listening to my client and i can tell when my internal voice is biasing me to offer solutions mm, mm. you know am i building the capacity to tell when my body is tensing up and wanting to really hurry the pace of the conversation you know am i building my capacity to sense as we were saying earlier into that subtext of what my client is saying uh what's being left unsaid yep and can i ask am i building the capacity to ask really powerful questions that can continue to help us find a way forward yeah and and just to add to that i'm noticing as a coach when i am truly listening what we call powerful questions tend to be almost 
instinctual, they fall out of me, and they're always really threaded into what the client is giving me. I, I don't feel like in those moments of deep listening, I have to think about what question to ask. And that for me is a good indicator I'm actually listening. And the opposite, when I find that my mind goes, oh, what's the, best, what's the next best question here? I'm no That's longer it. there. Yeah. Yeah. And and it also brought something else up from a different domain of life. And almost it, I'm, I'm feeling the guilt as I'm sitting here and, and listening to you describe what it means to be the instrument when it comes to active listening. Um, a feedback my now almost eight-year-old gave me when she was about five. And she was telling me something about her day at kindy and I was half listening. Mm. Um, but I was there. I wasn't doing anything else. Physically, mm. I wasn't. But mentally, I was half listening. And that's a generous description of my level of presence in that moment. And she suddenly stopped and looked at me and she said, Mommy, you're not here. You're mm. not hearing me. And it just, yeah, it struck me in the core how she she picked it up and called me out on it yeah. um because you know outwardly i was physically there mm. i wasn't checking my emails i wasn't doing mm. anything overtly mm. to show mm. that i wasn't really being mm. the listener mm. that she needed me to be mm. so i think there's something to be said about how others pick up on us being in that embodied state you're describing yeah, you know, if when we don't show up with that embodiment, it is, you know, and this is the, the lack of congruence, right, that others experience it, between who we say we're being and who we're actually being. And that's such a beautiful example with your daughter. You mm. um, and, and she felt safe to give you that feedback. Uh, and I'm... One of the concerns I have is who else gives us feedback, especially in yeah. our professional role as coaches, you know. Um, who can hold the mirror back to us? We, you know, there's an ethical obligation for us to really be investing in this work because we might get feedback from other domains of our life, but how often do we get feedback from our clients? Um, and so how do we continue to invest in ways that allow us to really be congruent. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this, this is the thing, right? Because if we kind of don't do the work ourselves, and this is so, you know, we were talking about this earlier in the conversation. Why, why did I feel like I had to keep exploring and playing and kind of finessing what I'm doing here? It's because we might, kind of fall short in helping our clients inhabit the territory that they long to inhabit. And they're in this work with us because they're inhabiting a territory that doesn't work for them anymore. Mm -hmm. And they know that. And they're saying, help me get to where, you know, a territory that's more fulfilling. Help me really inhabit that fully. Now, if we are not embodying where we're living if we have not really a full understanding of the territory we're we're in, you know, uh, we're inhabiting. If we're not then doing the work that allows us to inhabit the territory of being an effective developmental coach, how can we then do really effective work with our clients? Yeah. So, would you say there is a direct link between? 
the efforts we're making to keep ourselves as coaches honest, awake, aware, facing our behaviors, which we might not like to see, like doing all of that uncomfortable work. Is there a link between us doing that and us being more effective in supporting others' growth? And the opposite, like what what happens if we don't do that work? Are we less effective in helping them? I mean, I can only speak to my experience. And for me, there is a direct correlation. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, if we aren't working with being more and more embodied, with sort of being able to tune into our interiority, being able to tune into the interpersonal space between us and our clients, uh, being able to kind of really tune into the context in which we are working with ourselves and our clients and being able to develop capacities that then allow us to coach from that greater embodied awareness. Um, we might run the risk of feeling like we have taken our clients where they want to go simply because they now get the maps that we're working with. They understand what it means to, they know what it means to inhabit that terrain. Mm -hmm. But we might not really give them the tools and the practices to fully inhabit that terrain. So they yeah. might go. So they might transfer the theory, but not really it. model the practice. That's it. And so they'll then go away and, you know, some of them will have the capacities already. We don't know, right? Because we haven't really explored that space with them. Uh, and they might do just fine. Uh, others might struggle with really inhabiting that territory. Some others might inhabit it for a while, but then something happens in their lives that causes them to regress. But because there's been no conscious practicing and developing of these capacities that is that are required to inhabit that space, mm. the emotional capacity, the interpersonal capacity, the cognitive capacity, the moral capacity, mm. uh, they might find that they don't know how they could play in that space earlier, but they're not playing there anymore. Yeah. And they don't know how to get back there. Mm. So, so, yeah, no, sorry. Yeah. You go. No, you go. You go. No, I was, I was almost reflecting on, on almost on a, on a day to day, because it's, it's so interesting, this type of work. It's, it resonates when you talk about it and then when we get into the nitty-gritty of it, it's so hard to actually do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, you know, what are your, and I'm happy to share a couple of mine, you know, these kinds of practices, like very practical small things that you can do to train that muscle of embodiment. Let's say if, if embodiment yeah. were a muscle, yeah. Yeah. there yeah. are, you know, ways to train it and and people have their own ways to do that and i think there's um, a universe of practices out there but i'd love us yeah. to explore a little bit what are you know your own and you know, maybe mine as well and maybe just you know throw a bit of inspiration at, at people to consider what might be theirs how how do you keep yourself honest how do you keep yourself walking the talk how do you keep yourself growing um as a professional or and as a human being um, and for me, two things come to mind that I, I've, I have had a huge impact in, in my own growth 
and one is a personal practice and that is journaling Mm-hmm. which I've been doing since I was 16 and, and mm-hmm. revolting against my parents and kind of wanting to keep an account of my evolving self, lest I forget when I get to their age. I was convinced that there's this weird amnesia that grown-ups are, you know, uh, aff- afflicted by that makes them just genuinely forget that they were teenagers once and, mm-hmm. and felt like the, there's no way they can not get me to the extent that they're not getting me unless they just forgot because they must have been my age and I know they were my age. So that was my prompt for journaling. And it's just been such a life-changing exercise to, to reflect on my day, on where I messed up or what brought me joy. It can be anything, mm, mm. but it's a constant mirror. I, I find that I'm, I'm very honest with myself when I write. Um, yeah. And the other one is the truth tellers, as I call them the few people in life who call out my BS and then mm. just, you know, mm. love me and I love them and they're not afraid to just tell it as is and mm. just mm. call mm. out when I'm not <laughs> like yeah. like uh, my yeah. daughter did. Uh, yeah. She's, she's yeah. growing up to be quite a truth teller in my life. But yeah, I've got a, a, a few good friends and, and my partner and her just, you know, calling me out yeah. on stuff. Yeah. And these two simple things are making just such a huge difference for me. Yeah. Beautiful. So yeah, wondering what are yours? What what do you yeah. do? Gosh, I mean I have lots of different things that I'm practicing, but I want to just step back for a moment and before I sort of share what it is that I'm practicing, mm. uh maybe just you know, because I think that one of the th- I love your two practices, like journaling. But you know, I remember right through coach certification being asked to journal, and um it's not something that I practice in a deliberate and daily way now, but I will record ahas that come up for me and why they come up for me. And I will, you know, kind of make a note of when I'm in a practice, when something kind of unlocks what's happening in that. So, you know, my, it's a bit episodic, but it still serves me. Mm, same for uh, me not every, and, not every day but when it counts yeah yeah beautiful right and um and, but one of the things that i wanted to just i guess just step back and and share about practices is that we want to also develop a certain amount of skill in how we define a practice and how we scale a practice so we're not practicing we're not trying to develop muscle by practicing in our most challenging moments mm-hmm. we're actually finding a way to practice when things are you know not comfortable but starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable but not in the yeah. moment when you know that i think that so don't make something. it a crisis go like like a crisis intervention these kinds That's of it. practices make it make it a habit when when life is good and you're at your best, you're still practicing. Is that what you Well, think? not necessarily when life is good because it's kind of hard to have the motivation to practice then. But okay. when, how are we starting to, to, to find ways of practicing, coming out of a coaching conversation, kind of just reflecting on, um, okay, how did that conversation go? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I think about who I was being, if I think about my identity as a coach, um, you know, what was I noticing, you know, 
what did I believe my role was meant to be in that conversation? You know, what were some ideas or approaches or um, theories that maybe I was really, that I'm seeing I was, owned me, that I was really loyal to, um, and that was shaping what I could do, who I could be in that conversation, you know. How was I sort of noticing how I'm making meaning of that conversation? Was it a good conversation? Was it not a good conversation, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, maybe if I, and so really starting to unpack my I amness as a coach and what are the anchors of that I amness, you know? And I might notice that, oh, in I kind of noticed that I'm feeling really good coming out of this conversation because the client validated what was happening in that conversation for them. Mm -hmm. They walked away with this sense that it was an amazing conversation. Oh, I want to notice that that's really important to me. And I want to notice what happens when that's not present for me in a conversation. When you don't have that validation. When I don't have that validation, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And then I kind of notice, oh, you know, the muscle, therefore, that perhaps I need to bring more online is a capacity to self-validate. Yeah. That capacity to be um, able to really bring my best to the conversation, but then dealing from the outcomes. Yeah. So would you do that for yourself? Would you write down after your coaching sessions and and do this kind of unpacking? uh, Potentially um, at times? I, I do. I, well, I always make notes after every coaching conversation about where the, you know, what happened in the conversation, where did we get to, what were some of the things we explored. And also, yes, some notes for me, like what are some of the things that came up that I would, you know, that, that then gives me something, I guess, that calls me, invites me then to practice. Yeah. Okay, so I'm not practicing for no no reason, if you know what I mean. And um, I can then start to think about what's a really small way in which I can bring self-validation online, okay? And I won't start it in the coaching context. I might start it somewhere else. I might find a way where it, where all the domains in my life where I'm not really kind of anchoring in any form of self-validation, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, and maybe as a parent, you know, I'm also looking for validation from others that I'm being a good parent. Um, so how can I have a small practice that says, I've been the best parent I can be today. And how can I validate myself for who I was today or who I was yep. able to be today as a parent? Mm. Uh, or maybe that's sort of, you know, not territory that we're still comfortable with. So we might try that in a different domain, you know. Yep. Uh, but really finding ways of just practicing strengthening self-validation. Um, one of the practices that I would offer to some clients, um, and again, it works for some and it doesn't work for others, is just having a, you know, a bravo Alice looking in the mirror at the end of your day and going, bravo, Alice, you know, um, just Mm. wanting to validate and appreciate how you showed up in certain ways today, right? You're acknowledging yourself. uh, You're appreciating yourself. This is just waiting for someone else to give you the take. Yep. Um, 
And so little things like that. So really don't start with a big practice, start with a small practice. And then when you've done that, bring the next step to it and then the next thing and the next thing. And, Mm -hmm. And then one day you wake up and you go, I didn't realize I'm, you know, I look back five years ago to who I am today and self-validation is not something that I I feel like there's sufficient muscle there it's never going to be that I completely anchor in self-validation because development's funny it never really works that way but hey I've developed a lot more skill and capacity in this domain than I used to before I you know so I just wanted to sort of put that as a frame around practice yeah I love that and I and if I'm hearing that right, it's almost, you know, identify what's that theme? Like in, in our example now, it was self-validation where you just picked up how you're waiting for your client to validate you as a coach. And then you're taking that on as a topic of growth for yourself. That's and it. then you're starting to play with noticing where else does it show up That's in your it. life? That's and it. then you start to play with small experiments that actually strengthen that muscle yeah. in other domains of life, not necessarily in your coaching where it the observation started. That's it. But then in that iterative, small experiments kind of process, you find that, well, you don't need that as much from your clients anymore That's it. Uh, as you used to. So, so it's almost like not looking at our growth in isolation. I'm just investing in this thing to grow myself as a coach or as a facilitator or as a leader, but actually seeing how the different domains of our lives are interconnected and often the same theme plays out in different ways in the different roles that we play in turn in our life. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And I think that that you'll find that those threads are rarely, you know, compartmentalized into specific domains. Those threads will show up. Uh, If you can do enough peeling the onion around your identity, you might start with your identity as a coach, but what you're seeing are threads that that also show up. They have a different expression, but they'll show up in your identity as a parent. They'll show up in your identity as a sibling. They'll show up in your identity in how you relate to your partner. And so that's that's actually, those are things that will serve us if we can start to unpack, recognize what they are, um, and and just start, engaging in small experiments that lead to practices you know like when I say an experiment but it's also I'm practicing something I'm Mm -hmm. doing something different to what I would normally do that's an experiment Um, you're trying something different than you would normally would and then I'm getting the feedback from that and then I'm continuing to experiment with it and I'm tuning into and I might not tune into it every day but like I said in time you kind of realize oh I've been playing with this notion of self-validation and I've been playing with all these different ways of validating myself and one day I wake up and realize I I notice I'm not really as anchored in that anymore yeah um yeah and and yeah and so you know with that sort of framing I guess I have practices around self-acceptance like I was saying earlier you know with sort of really sort of uh recognizing the voice of my inner critic, uh, recognizing how that is not a, uh, how do I hold that not as a deficiency 
the voice of deficiency, uh, but develop the capacity to say, yeah, and so that's who I was able to be in that context, and where's the growth opportunity here? Um, and so we're really working on self-acceptance as a pathway to growth. Uh, as part of that, you know, also working on self-compassion, because that's the other thing that I think uh, is an important muscle for us to build because we're working with in a space that's psychologically demanding. So how can mm -hmm. we actually work on self-compassion? Because this is, as you said, it's difficult work. Um, yep. And, what is the yeah. difference for you, Priya, between self-acceptance and self-compassion? Oh, I mean, I don't know that. I think all of these, they will be I, they will be interconnected separate yeah we can't treat them as separate but self-compassion i think requires you to bring your heart more online to be able to sit with stuff that makes you feel really vulnerable it it's it's like i want to almost say and i'm I'm making this up, but I almost want to say it's self-acceptance plus a very big heart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, can can self-acceptance, you know, it's just where do, where are, how much of my heart's online when it comes to self-acceptance and how Yeah, so is it more of a cognitive when, act or is it a yeah. loving act? Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm, I love that. Self-acceptance plus a big heart. And that's just what's coming up for me now. Yeah. I will probably tease that apart because it's a really good question. But um, again, yeah, we just want to notice, you know, I think that um, at least in the, in the way that I've been trained to do this work, uh, we work with what's called, we were trained to work with what, we'll call vertical lines of development. So not just stages of development, but, you know, how am I growing and evolving interpersonally? How am I growing and evolving emotionally? How am I growing and evolving somatically, morally? Um, and I feel like there's different combinations of those that serve self-acceptance and different combinations of those that serve self-compassion. Um, yeah. Yeah, and self, you know, self acceptance and self compassion are self are reinforcing as well. Each other, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I, I do want to zoom in on on the idea of lines for just a moment, um, as you brought it into the conversation, because I think what we're also saying is this developmental continuum through the stages is really not a series of boxes that people evolve from and to. Uh, it's actually um, a map that describes this continuum of human growth. But if you double click on that map, if you double click on each stage of development, you'll find these threads, right? These lines of development. So then, uh, and th those lines evolve asynchronously. So we might actually find that we are quite complex thinkers, but That's we it. are lacking a lot of self-awareness. Um, and then how do we support or create those practices to strengthen our self-awareness muscle and evolve our self-awareness line? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So then... Yeah. Beautiful. 
as a coach, as you work with yourself and, you know, you treat yourself as the instrument, as you were saying before, you would almost work on the lines that you feel are my relationship to power or the way I'm able to process and respond to feedback or the way I engage with others um, and collaborate. And there could be many, many lines we could look at. But then, yeah, almost what's what are the lines that require attention as they come out of of this overall practice of just staying mindful and attuned to what it is that we're actually doing and how we're actually showing up? Um, And again, you know, like there's, if you look at the literature, there's probably two dozen lines out there. Um, for our purposes of being a more embodied developmental coach, uh, my invitation would be, and this is, again, just speaking from my lived experience, um, how do we start to really develop our capacities on not just the cognitive line, because I feel like we go there. We just go there. We That's love a comfortable that. line to inhabit. Oh, absolutely, right? Uh, what do I know? What am I aware of? I think that question is something that fuels us. And so I think we actually paradoxically want to know when we are over-indexing on that line. Mm, I love that. To the exclusion of other lines because that's just so juicy for us, okay? Yeah. So there's something about do I just continue to get better and better and better and better at what I'm aware of and what I know. Um, and, you know, and I confine my life to, to that pursuit of knowledge. Um, and uh, how can I notice when that's happening? How can I notice and my, my life's actually not as multi-hyphenated as it should be, that I'm actually investing so much of my life in pursuing a line versus multiple yeah. lines of development. Versus, that might yeah, be. that whole um, tapestry uh, um, made up of the That's multiple it. threads. That's what it. would you say, Priya, that is a line that you most often see being neglected um, um, at the detriment of, you know, the impact you can have as a coach if you're a coach or a leader or so on? Is, is there, maybe there's not one, but I'm, yeah, just curious what, if you're noticing any, because I also notice a lot of us, and I include myself here, we favor the cognitive line. We like sophisticated models. We like to understand things. We like to know, to figure stuff out. Uh, And to a certain extent, self-awareness does employ the cognitive line. too. You can be very aware of a behavioral pattern and not do anything about it. That's it, right? Um, So is there a neglected or are there some particularly neglected lines which you feel if we paid more attention to that would positively impact uh, our capacity to embody? That's a a difficult one. I don't know that I would specifically say this line or that line because I think each of us is wired differently Differently. and we have different, uh, you know, we depending on our life circumstances and experiences we've had, we've kind of each of us grown quite differently through each of these lines. But I would say uh, we want to kind of at any point in time 
if we want to be continuing to work on self as instrument and being more effective developmental coaches, my invitation would be to say, hey, we already do the cognitive line, but what are we embodying and practicing on the interpersonal line? You know, a beautiful one there, for example, is, and I think this one might be really helpful for coaches, is um, as coaches, we are givers. And uh, and we could get a lot of juice from giving. But what am I as a coach? How am I working with receiving? Mm-hmm. When am I open to receiving? Who am I open to receiving from? What am I open to receiving? What conditions need to be present for me to receive? That hits home for me. I'm a very yeah. bad receiver. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And you, you, you would say that, yeah, and it would make sense that that is part of the interpersonal line. It's how are you comfortable yeah, be- with both giving and receiving in That's different it. relationships, different contexts of your life. Yep. Yeah. And how is that showing up as a developmental coach in your coaching conversations? Yep. Right. Uh, and so that might be something that we want to play with uh, on the emotional line. You know, something like that. Again, yep. that, um, you know, am I, as a developmental coach, I kind of, some, you know, the maps tell me I should be really able to kind of stick with strong emotions within myself and within my client. And I have the awareness to know when my client's experiencing strong emotions. I have the awareness to know when strong emotions are coming up within me. But what am I able to, who am I able to be in that moment? What am I able to do with that? How am I embodying that capacity? Um, you know, that might be something that we want to play with developing. Because are we just in that moment racing off to cognitive land? Yes. Because uh, emotional land is not that comfortable to sit no, in. No, no. Yep. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah, um, moral I, line. You know, mm. that's another one that. Sorry, I interrupted. No, 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 no. Say, say about the moral line uh, because I, th- this is coming up quite a bit in a lot of conversations I'm having lately. Um, where, where I've I've heard questions such as, "How is it possible for somebody to be super intelligent, super sophisticated, but extremely immoral in their actions and and not even seemingly aware of?" of the negative impact they're having. Yeah. Um, yeah. And to know that there is such a thing as a, a moral line of development where you can actually be quite a few steps behind your cognitive line That's on it. that moral line that yeah. kind of explains how those gaps in yeah. um, between intellectual capacity and ethical behavior can happen. That's it. Right. And history is peppered with examples. Right. You think about uh, Nazi doctors, for example, so high on the cognitive line. But where were they on the moral line? Um, Mm. You know, or even in more recent history, if you think about um, some of the players that actively participated in, in the financial crisis that engulfed the world. Uh, back in 2008, I think it was, um, the global financial crisis, right? And some of the what was happening with selling 
mortgages that should never have been sold. I mean, so you can see how extremely capable in, in, in a cognitive sense, people who can write amazing algorithms and play investment markets and whatever you could, could also participate in, in a way that was unethical and immoral. And I think therefore we want to know that this is the thing with the map, right? Like I don't, I think that we want to know that maps are, as we were exploring earlier, quite reductionist, and we really want to know what is happening for us in, in these different lines. And what are some of the lines that are, re I, I think if we have high cognitive, and, I, and this is just my experience, if we have high cognitive and low interpersonal development, perhaps it's easier to slide into or stay complacent with low moral development. Yeah, this is probably a whole other conversation. I will definitely uh, put some, some resources on stages and lines um, in, the, in the show description, mm. in the episode description, because I think it's, it's a really, for, for people who are interested in, in the potential of vertical development and developmental theories in general for essentially supporting human beings to grow towards more wisdom, um, the way to to get there, uh, not that anybody knows exactly what that way is, but uh, we know it's messy. We know it's not one faceted. Uh, we know there are so many threads in the way human beings grow that need to be teased apart. And for those of us who are in roles in different contexts where we support that growth for others, um, the responsibility to turn the mirror constantly mm. towards us and kind of do that work um, is very present. Um, and, and, you know, and we've touched, we've covered so much territory, Priya, um, that I, I would love to almost zoom out for a, for a moment as we, you know, near the end of this conversation to kind of go, why? Like, what for? Why are you doing this? What are you doing it for? Um, you were, you were mm. talking a little bit about your identity and, and you know, um, I'd love to hear, yeah, what's, what's fundamentally driving you to put yourself through all this effort, to constantly interrogate your own thinking, your own feeling, to, you know, call yourself out on things uh, um, and, yeah, do the, all the work you're doing. What are you hoping? Um. To answer that, I would have to say I've been a student of integral theory for uh, some decades now. Um, and one of the things that I have come to understand is that, you know, as, as people, as societies, as civilizations, uh, in the long arc of history, we have been evolving. You know, uh, as you and I were talking about before this podcast, you know, we've, we've gone from uh, being societies of slave owners and deep gender inequality and, you know, uh, really stifling unhealthy societies hundreds of years ago to being more inclusive, being more you know, not that we're at gender parity, but certainly where women are today versus 300 or 400 years ago, there's been a shift. You know, slave ownership is now is illegal 
people. And, and so we are evolving as societies. We are, have gone from treating other individuals and fellow human beings as, uh, as its, as resources to meet our own ends to, you know, where we have a more humane society where voices of everybody matter more than they did in the past. And so you can see that the world is evolving, not that we've solved all our problems, but we are evolving in, in ways that are better and better. And, and for me, the idea of being a small cog in that very giant wheel that is serving the evolution of consciousness is what really gives me purpose and meaning. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if that is something that will continue to give me purpose and meaning, but at this point in my identity, it, it continues to serve me. And so if you ask me why I do this work, I think it's just, as you said, you know, help bring more of that wisdom online, um, serve that evolution that is happening anyway, but how can I participate in that more consciously? Yeah. And how can I contribute to that in a way that um, that I hope, you know, serves that space? Yeah, I love that, and and I love I love the reminder that there is growth, that there is um, an evolution in in our maturity. Although it's so hard at times to see that, and and I confess I often fall in that trap of hopelessness and mm. anxiety and uh wondering what kind of a future my kid mm. is gonna be an adult in mm. um mm. but yeah it, it's almost like I, well, i'm taking what you're saying as as this invitation as this reminder that growing towards more wisdom maturity towards a higher stage of consciousness uh, collectively is probably the only way to figure out how to solve the gnarly problems we've created ourselves all while acknowledging we've come a long way in many ways yeah absolutely absolutely mm. and and you know and kind of also resting in the this is a journey like i don't know where this how this continues to evolve and where it continues to to go but and also it's not linear yeah uh that it's going to it's going to be three steps forward five steps back two steps forward one step back who knows right but there is a certain way in which but the long arc is pointing towards growth yeah uh, and uh and so yeah how do we take comfort from that and also continue to, to kind of know how we serve what might evolve next. Yeah. Oh, thank and you for, so, yeah. <laughs> you go. No, 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 I you can go, talk go. about this. I can talk <laughs> about this endlessly, <laughs> Alice. So, yeah, no, <laughs> I think that, you know, I feel like, yeah, like you, we've covered a lot of terrain if, um, if there are more questions, I'd be very happy to. I'll share. I'll share where people can find and connect with you, Priya. And um, I do have one last question as we wrap mm. up. Um, you've been serving the coaching profession for 
a few decades now, and I'd love to ask you, what's your hope for our profession? What, what is the role you think we can play? And what is the, yeah, what's your hope for coaches? If there's one or, or um, opportunity you see or. Oh, my God, that is such a big question. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and so, you know, again, I um, can offer my you know, um, perspectives, um, mm. a couple of different things maybe, because uh, I don't know that I can answer that fully. Uh, but one sort of belief that I sit with, Alice, is really that coaching is the growth modality of our times. Uh, and uh, now more than ever, given just the incredible complexity that we face, you know, and the incredible challenges that we face, you know, talk about climate change. And um, that's just one of 15, you know, cosmic challenges that we're sitting with, right? Yeah. Like the poly crisis is uh, it's often it. called, <laughs> you know, and, and mm. so when we think about the magnitude of the the challenges we're facing and the complexity of life that we're in today i think coaching can has such a big role to play in supporting individuals navigating this space in a way that is useful fruitful helpful and so my invitation to coaches is to mm-hmm. yeah you know and i hope that coaches will continue to use the most, you know, the most deeply refined, deeply sort of the, the biggest possible meta maps of growth that, and evolution that they can use to to support them in their work in this space. And, uh, and I hope that coaches will, you know, see the value in embodying and in being the works because this is such an important time to be a coach. Uh, mm-hmm. And how do we actually bring ourselves so fully to serving and supporting clients in this space that we've chosen to play in? I'll take this away for me. How do we be the work? <laughs> um, knowing that perhaps what we've got to offer, which is not solutions, it's actually presence and curiosity and a facilitation of others' growth. Is That's it maybe more needed than it ever was beautiful yeah i can i yeah that resonates so much for me yeah Mm. priya thank you for your wisdom thank you for your generosity and um thank you for sharing a little bit of the intricate story of how you are uh the instrument (laughs) (laughs) thank you alice it's such a pleasure to sort of be on this podcast to be to be with you and and also to hear your stories and I feel like I'm going to you know really anchor in holding my truth tellers to account some more (laughs) than they do now yeah Yeah. thanks so much thank you take care you too Priya thank you so much
As always, I hope you learn and are inspired by each of these conversations at least as much as I have been, and the dialogue with Priya is no exception. There are a couple of things that have touched me in particular about this conversation. One is the idea that as a coach, and I would dare add as a leader, educator, or even parent, you are the tool of your craft. People learn and grow not so much from what you say, but from who you are when you are next to them or in front of them. So any inner work that you do, be it reflecting on your own shadow, your darker corners, or cultivating a practice of self-acceptance and self-compassion, all of this work is in the service of honing the instrument that you are. By doing the work yourself, by being willing to make yourself uncomfortable, being present with everything you feel, even that which is hard to feel, befriending your inner critic, you are in fact modeling a path for those who in turn trust you with their growth. Doing the inner work is a responsibility, a privilege and a gift you give yourself and others. The other thing I took away from this conversation was hope. Like many around me, I often feel weighed down by the chaos of this world, caught up in catastrophic thinking. I do believe the world is in trouble, and I do believe we need to grow our wisdom fast so we can better navigate the storms ahead of us. But Priya also reminded me that the world has progressed, that we have come a long way. And while we still have a long way to go, I do believe it's important to stop and celebrate what we have already accomplished both collectively and personally. So I wonder, what do you have to celebrate? What growth is behind you? What helped you get to where you are? Sometimes it's worth stopping and acknowledging that we have already built so much, and that may help us gather strength for the journey ahead. Priya has touched on a few interesting concepts, one of which is the lines of development, those threads hiding underneath the stages. I have included some interesting articles on lines in the show notes for those of you who might want to dig deeper, and I plan to elaborate further on this in future articles and episodes because I believe that lines are a little understood and hugely powerful aspect of vertical development. That's all from me for today, friends. Until next time, stay curious, stay conscious, and stay wise.